We're going to read from Philippians 3, and I want to um, just pick up where we left off last week. Remember what Paul's just been saying. Around verse 12, he's been saying that he presses on to make it his own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He talks about this aggressive, determined desire to live for Jesus, and to become more like Jesus. And... uh, then he turns to them in this very sort of fatherly way, or brotherly way, really. And verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me. and Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you've seen in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I want you to understand, um, as we try and open up what Paul's saying, that we are looking at some of the most urgent and important things you can think about in the Christian life. I think you pick it up in the flavor of what he's saying here, that this is really a kind of a life and death matter that we're talking about. I know that's a heavy way to start a sermon, but... I think it's very important that you, you become aware, attuned to kind of the gravity of the kind of things that Paul's wanting us to think about when we're being addressed in this way. And, uh, and, and attune your heart to God's voice, really, that he wants to speak to us and address us and really reset what we think is important in life. And I want to help you to see that, just asking you a couple of questions to begin with. My first question is this. What in life do you think is worth fighting for? What do you consider to be worth gunning for and going for with all your passion and aggression and desire? What's worth fighting for in life? I was, um, recently my wife and I rewatched that series from 2002, Band of Brothers, um, produced by Spielberg and Hanks, that follows Easy Company, the true story of Easy Company, from their training all the way through to them reaching the eagle's nest, um, Hitler's home in Germany uh, in the Second World War. And uh, also watched Dunkirk this week, and absolutely incredible. One of the things that, that strikes you when you watch these films is the amazing sacrifice of men who felt in their gut that they had to do something about the evil that was encroaching upon the planet. And they didn't particularly feel like heroes, but they just knew they had to play their part and it was something worth fighting for. And my overriding sense when I, um, you know, a lot of the Band of Brothers has like these little live, these little real interviews with the actual veterans at the beginning and end of each episode. And the thing that strikes me when I'm watching, I, I begin to become quite introspective. And I think this is probably true for a lot of us, especially I think for men, when you watch, you think, well, would I have what it, what it would take if I was in their position? Because you can dream and imagine that you would, but if you were there, would you have the courage 
to actually stand up and do the right thing? Would you have the courage not to hide in a corner and try and evade the conflict? And that makes me introspective because I, I have no idea. You don't, I don't think you really know what you're made of until it's tested, do you, in life? Now, we're told to kind of suppress all aggression and the fight in our heart. But actually, you know, the Bible says that there are certain things in life that are worth fighting for. I was trying to show you last week when Paul says, I press on to make it my own. That language of pressing on was a language of what an army does when it has a retreating army in front of it and pursuing them with passion and aggression. He says, I press on. He's aggressively wanting to take hold of the calling that is his in Christ. And he uses here the language of enemies. So Paul wants you to kind of be attuned to the mindset of a soldier when you're thinking about what it means to live the Christian life in day-to-day life. That it is not a kind of um, a drift through and a walk through the park, but there is something here worth fighting for. Now, have you approached your Christian life with that kind of determination or aggression? What in, in, your, in your world do you think is worth fighting for? That's my first question. And the second is this. What in life, in your life, has the power to make you weep? What has the power to evoke the deepest compassion and emotions and desires that that actually can give birth to tears? Because I think that sometimes we cry about the wrong things. I remember as a child, I used to keep stick insects in in a clear tub that used to be a chocolate tub. And I had about three or four of these things um, you put little privet branches from a hedge in there to feed them, and I neglected these things atrociously. But I loved animals. And one day, one of my stick insects went missing. And I can't remember how old it was, but um, young, I'm sure. I, I, uh, do you know what I did? I began, to, I began to weep for this stick insect. Can you believe it? I, was, I searched my bedroom high and low. I emptied the cupboards. I looked everywhere because I thought this stick insect will die without my help, without my nurturing help. And um, even though I then fed them once every three or four weeks. And I think we, we have, can have misdirected emotions in life, can't we? What is it that, that, that can make you weep? Um, you know, I've, if you ever watch films, isn't it the case that usually you cry more when the dog dies? And when the hero dies, right? Or, you know, in day-to-day life, the things that are likely to make us upset, in the grand scheme of things, tend to be quite unimportant. You know, whether or not we're successful or whether we feel people like us, those kinds of things. And here's the point. The stuff that you cry about is, reveals what you most care about. It reveals what's most important to you in life, the stuff that can evoke tears, it's true of both those questions. What you're worth fighting for, what's worth weeping for, it reveals the things that really matter in your heart. And all of that's true here when Paul's talking about the Christian life. Something worth fighting for, something worth pursuing, something worth crying for. He says it here. What is it that makes him cry? He says in, in verse 18, I've often told you and now tell you even with tears. You, I, you know, I think he's literally crying as he writes this letter. He sat there with tears welling from his eyes because of the emotions that are brought to the surface by what he's thinking about. What is it that, that, that would make him feel this way? And this is the answer, friends. That the issue at stake for him is that every person has two ways to live their life. 
And broadly, you can think about them like this, that there's a kind of earthly way or a heavenly way. The earthly way is to live as though this life is all there is. And uh, for some of you, that's because you think that this life is all there is. And maybe, so it, it, it kind of makes sense that that's the way you live. For others of us, now we believe that there is more, but functionally, in reality, practically, when it comes down to it, you don't live as though there's more. It's not reflected in your choices, your decisions, or your priorities, the things that you do with your time, resources, energy, life, all of it. Because really, you think, if, if I lived in the reality of heaven, my life would look different. So there's an earthly way to live, and then there's a, a heavenly way, which is where the realities of the future, and of Christ, and of his future, for us, are so heavy in your mind that you live as though they are true. Your life reflects the truthfulness of that future. And I think that's what makes Paul kind of evokes this emotion in him that he thinks about people and he sees that some of them are living such blind lives as though God is not real, as though Christ is not risen, as though heaven is not real. And others, he wants to exhort us to live the life that's the opposite to that. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, how on earth can we even know if there's such a thing? Has anyone, has anyone ever come back and proved that to us? And of course, Paul mentions it here when he says... Um, that Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Remember, please do not forget that Paul is a man who has seen Christ in his glorious body. He saw the risen Lord Jesus. He saw Jesus who'd been crucified and he saw him risen from the dead. He was an eyewitness of Jesus alive from the dead. And so he lived his whole life in view of the fact of what he had seen with his own eyes. What does that do to a person when they know more than they know anything, with more certainty than they know anything, that Jesus is alive. What does that do to you? Well, Paul's a good example of what that does to you. You live with such passionate determination to live for his glory. And eventually, maybe you die for it as well, which is what he did. He was martyred. That's how you can know that this stuff is real. We're reading the letter from an eyewitness. So I want to outline for you Just those two things, the way of earth and the way of heaven. And hopefully, I think God's going to be doing dealings with all of us. Some of you are not Christians at all, and hopefully some of this will resonate with you. And others of us are Christians, but we're living in certain aspects as though we are not. I want God, I I would hope that God will speak to you today. I believe he will. I encourage you to, to really listen in. The way of earth. Here it is described here, verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. What happens to a person when they live as though there is no future beyond the present? And this world is all there is. What happens to your life? What does your life look like? I don't think you actually have to think very hard about that because the world we live in, the city we live in, is kind of ruled under philosophical naturalism. The idea that the material universe is all that there ever was and all that there ever will be. So if you want to ask the question, what does a person look like? What do they do with their time, their life, their energy when they think that this life is all there is? Just look all around you. Our city is the product of that thinking. 
But here's a few things that we can put our finger on here. The first thing that will characterize you, if you think this way, is what you can call unrestrained desire. He he puts it like this. He says that these people, in verse 19, says that God is their belly. Their God is their belly. Now, for some people, I think he probably didn't mean this in a slightly literal way, but I think he also means it metaphorically. So for some people, food is literally become, becomes kind of your God. Your, your belly becomes your God. That Food is what it's about. But really, I don't think Paul's just talking about that. I think he's talking about appetites, desires, passions, longings, lusts of the heart. And says, this is what it looks like to live with an earthly mind. These things, these things become your God. Why a God? Well, simply because a God is something that you worship and obey, right? So when a desire in your life becomes so important to you that you begin to worship it, it means you you adulate it, you you think about it, you meditate on it. It It gives your life meaning, it gives your life joy, it gives your life pleasure. And then, of course, you begin to obey also. That desire begins to rule you, begins to tell you how to live, what your life ought to look like in any given moment. It says their God is their belly because you're ruled by earthly appetites, fleshly desires, fleshly kind of your bodily longings and, and, and so on. I think we live at a time when this kind of desire has been crowned and even made to be the controlling moral rule, really, of life. That desire is God. I was reading an article by um, Andrew Brown, who writes for The Guardian recently. And uh, I don't know where he stands on faith, but he, he was talking about the dangers of pornography. And he says in the title of his article, he says, The danger of porn goes beyond just sex. It normalizes unchecked desire. And then he explains a little bit more what he means by that. He says, The world of porn is one where every desire can be gratified But the belief that all desire can and should be gratified is itself what is radically wrong. You think about the way our world is moving and all the kind of frontline battles of progressivism and liberalism, they are all about desire. And he says, the problem is that we think that desire itself must always be gratified. That explains the result, the fruit of what we're seeing in our world. And even in our own lives as individuals, right? That if I have this desire, it must find its gratification in this outlet. The problem, of course, is that if Paul's right and he says that God is their belly, in other words, that your desire becomes an idol that you worship and that rules over you, False gods enslave you and ultimately hurt you and destroy you. Any, look around you. It doesn't take much thinking to, to really realize the truthfulness of this. The people who give themselves over to desire eventually are destroyed by those desires. Even just taking it at face value, their God is their belly. What happens if your belly becomes your God? Don't you end up having to be cut out of your home 
and lifted to the hospital, which literally can happen. Don't you end up eating, having, having gout and heart disease and all these things. But that's just true at a very superficial level of one desire. What of all the other desires? So that's the first thing, unrestrained desire. Here's another marker of what it means to live an earthly life, a kind of earthly-minded life. It's this. It's what I want to call the reversal of good and bad. Because he, says, he puts it like this. He says that God is their belly and they glory in their shame. Glory means to boast. It means that the thing that you celebrate about yourself and about your life. You glory, you boast about your shame. There are things in our lives that ought to cause us shame, but which if you tolerate for long enough and indulge long enough can in fact become sources of pride. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Isaiah where um, he's talking about this, what happens in a culture when people begin to indulge all these desires in an unfettered, unrestricted way. And he puts it like this. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. In other words, the mark of a culture that has made desire God is that you begin to switch the labels on things. In fact, that's the indicator that a culture is declining when we we don't know how to label things anymore. That good is called evil and evil is called good. That light is called darkness and darkness is called light. And then he talks about what happens when you start to do that. You switch the labels. The obvious answer, of course, is that it makes sense that when desire becomes your God, then the most devoted people are the people who serve their desires the most passionately. So it gives an example of that in Isaiah. He says, um, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. So you can picture it, can't you? This is a, a people surrounded by enemies, the Israelites who are always, almost always it seems, under attacker and at war. And the valiant men, the warriors, are no longer known for their acts of courage on the battlefield in defense of God's people, but are known for how much they can drink and how, how much of a stupor they get in on a Friday night before Sabbath kicks in. They glory in their shame. So the the very things that we ought to be ashamed of become the cause for boasting in life because we've switched the labels. And now serving desire, desire becomes God, and I'm more devoted to that God the more I serve it, the more I give my desires over to it, the more I become a slave of it. And friends, I want to say this is the most dangerous place you can ever be when the things that we ought to be ashamed of, we no longer feel shame for. God gave us all a gift of our conscience. I believe it's the kind of imprinted word of God on the heart of every man as to what is right and what is wrong. And the, and the voice of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to you about how you should live and how you should not live. But the thing is, when a person runs roughshod over their conscience enough times or deliberately enough, eventually the conscience becomes quieter and quieter and eventually disappears. Do you remember hearing about how the ear worked when you are in biology classes? How you have lots of tiny, tiny little hairs in your ear that vibrate at different frequencies. And this is how you pick up sounds. If a particular note is, is, is being emitted, the hairs in your ear vibrate and it's transmitted to your brain as a sound signal. 
But if your ears are exposed to relentless barrage of loud sounds, eventually those, ear, those hairs become flattened and non-responsive. And you're no longer able to hear. And in a way, that's a picture of exactly what happens to the heart, to the conscience, when desire becomes God. Initially, there was a screaming sense of guilt and shame over the things that you did and indulged. But the more you serve desire, the quieter that guilt and shame becomes until eventually you don't hear it at all. And it's not that you've become more enlightened, which is what a lot of people think when they think about what progressivism and liberalism is. It's rather that you become deadened to the voice of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Now that's not to say that there isn't hope. God can break in. It's his mercy when he does. When he begins to awaken you again. Awaken in you again a spiritual appetite. A kind of pause where you think, this isn't working. Something's missing. Unrestrained desire. The reversal of good and bad. Switching the labels. And short-sightedness is the third mark of this earthly way of thinking. He says it like this. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Minds set on earthly things. And this is simply what I've been describing. It's to live as though this life is all there is. What would it look like logically if I lived as though death is the end? Jesus quoted from the book of Ecclesiastes once when he was telling a parable about a man accumulating wealth. And the man's philosophy of life was, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. It's the answer to the question. What does it look like when you live as though this life is all there is? The answer is, give yourself over to whatever pleasure and happiness you can have now, because ultimately, the opportunity is gone when you die. Now, is that, isn't that a perfect summary of what the world believes the meaning of life is? And how easily we imbibe that when we think we're missing out or we need to run after that thing because I won't have an opportunity in the future, so I must have now. It was interesting just um, a couple of weeks ago when Ben wrote his article about being a 26-year-old virgin for our online thing, Salt. And it really, in Jeremy's words, it popped. A lot of people read the article. Why? Why, are pe- Why do people read it? Because they cannot believe that there might be a person in this world who is eligible and good-looking with a mighty beard like Ben, <laughs> and yet also, by choice, a virgin. Why would you not serve the God of sex? Why would you miss out? Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Now that that expression comes, as I mentioned, from the book of Ecclesiastes. Most likely written by Solomon, who gave himself over to these kinds of desires. And in the end, what does he describe it as? He calls it vanity, or futility, emptiness. It's all vanity, he says. In other words, it's, it's hollow in the end. You think this is what life is about? But the more you indulge, the more sick you become. Friends, there's a heaviness to what Paul's saying here. I think 
I think you've got to talk this way because he's weeping as he writes. He says, their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. Some of that destruction is self-inflicted because, as you know, when you give yourself over to unrestrained desire, you do begin to destroy your life. But you destroy it not only in the physical way, you also destroy your life. You destroy your personhood. Your soul is destroyed. Your sense of peace is destroyed. Your sense of dignity and who you are as a man or a woman is destroyed. It all begins to erode. It is a form of self-destruction that you, you experience. But there's more than that, isn't it? I think what Paul's talking about here is more than just self-destruction, the natural consequences of doing wrong and unrestrained desire. I think he's also talking about the very real threat of what God does to a person who makes desire God. It's described in, in Psalm 92. He says, The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. In other words, he's saying, look, when we look around at the world, what we see is a lot of people seeming to do very well and being very happy because they are doing bad things. And he says, yeah, what you're looking at is grass. It comes up very quickly. It looks lush. It looks inviting. But he says, as quickly as it grows, it goes yellow and dies. If we have a stretch of warm heat in London for any length of time, don't all the parks go yellow and look disgusting? They go dry and dead. Their end is destruction, Paul says. But he's also trying to advocate as passionately as he can Friend, there is an alternative for you, and you don't have to go down that road anymore. In fact, today you can stop, you can turn around. He calls it the way of heaven. I call it the way of heaven. Paul doesn't, but that'll do. <laughs> he says, Listen, if earthly mindedness is like being like grass, what is, what is heavenly mindedness? What, is, what does your life look like when you live the way Jesus wants you to? The answer again is in that psalm. And the answer is that you look more like a cedar. In Psalm 92, he says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. I have had the enormous privilege of seeing the last cedar forest in Lebanon. Most of them have been cut down. But there is one patch of Lebanon, I believe it's the only one, where the ancient cedars are still standing. And it is breathtaking. These trees are magnificent. The, the might of each branch is overwhelming. You can sit on a branch and they are as wide as I am tall going out horizontally and then up. And they were a picture in biblical times of might and of strength and of stability and longevity. They're often sung about in the Old Testament as the trees that you use when you want to go to war or when you want to build a temple. You need this wood from this place. And the psalm says, you grow like a cedar in Lebanon why? Because they're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They're ever full of sap and green. Your life has a significant meaning now and into eternity when it is planted in God's house, when you are rooted in God's will and you know the living God. That's what he's saying. What are the markers then of a person 
who lives and thinks this way. Again, I want to draw out three from Philippians. The first, it's to do with what you know, that you know you belong to a different people, you know you belong to a different place, and you know you belong to a different person. The first is this, that you know you belong to a different pe- uh, people. Verse 17, brothers, he says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And what's he talking about? Think about how growth and transformation happens in your life. You want to become more like that. How do you get to there? Part of it, we know, is to do with imbibing information. There's a certain degree of just book learning you need to engage in in life if you want to grow. You might buy the the dummies books, this for dummies or that for dummies, or you're self-taught. But ultimately, actually, most transformation that happens in your life, especially transformation at a character level, but even in daily the way your habits and your habit and your kind of outworking of what you know is to do with imitation. That somehow you, you found examples around you that are worthy of copying and they become for you uh, models that you run hard after. Imitation is the most powerful way of learning because we are imitative by nature. It's the first thing, the first way you begin to learn from when you're born is that you begin to imitate sounds and actions. But it doesn't change just when you get older. The reason why I'm stressing this, friends, is because Christian discipleship is a kind of tradecraft that can only be learned through deep imitation. What I mean is, I was reading a little while ago um, an interview with a man called Michael Crawford, who um, has written a fair amount about this. And he is citing a, a philosopher called, a, and scientist called Michael Polanyi. And Michael Polanyi made, was making the point that scientific knowledge is best understood, he says, as a species of craft knowledge. And what's craft knowledge? Craft knowledge is the kind of knowledge you need in order to um, build a house or to uh, whittle away marble until you have a sculpture like David. That's craft knowledge. And he says even scientific knowledge is a kind of craft knowledge. It's a, it's a skill and a skill that you have to learn. But you have to learn it from particular people within a particular kind of mentorship, he says. And then he, just, he says, oh, this is what explains how America was the first in the race to build the nuclear bombs in the Manhattan Project that was going on during the Second World War. They'd taken on board some scientists from Germany, including Albert Einstein, who warned them that the Nazis were up to this. But in the West, in German science and also in American science and British science, there is a culture of the way of doing science that is unwritten. There is, of course, the same knowledge that's available all across the world in textbooks. But you know how hard it is to actually build a nuclear bomb. I'm I'm guessing you know that, not from experience, right? You can see how hard it is because... Our friend in North Korea is trying his best, and he's struggling to, to actually execute what was achieved by Western nations decades ago. This is not easy. And the answer why America won that race, Polanyi argues, is because of this kind of craft knowledge, this mentorship, this culture of the way of doing things that's unwritten. So you can read the same textbooks on science, but you don't know, necessarily make the same advances. And it explains a lot of what the advance in, in certain cultures there are these imbibed, hidden ways of doing that you only learn through imitation. So he used the example of like making violence. He says, with all the techniques of modern science, we can't reproduce a Stradivarius violin. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Why? Because Stradivarius hit on something unique. And only he and then his son were able to make these violins, and the knowledge died with them. Now, the reason why I'm saying this to you, friends, is because when Paul... Let's loop back to what we're talking about here. When Paul is thinking about how Christians who are constantly saturated in a world that thinks with an earthly mind can live in in a heavenly way, the first thing he wants you to get and to grasp is that you must do it by imitating believers who are ahead of you. He says, first of all, imitate me. Join in imitating me. And he's not speaking arrogantly when he says that. No more arrogantly than, than um, if you were to meet a craftsman and they say, copy what I do. It's not arrogance, it's just that they've been doing it for years and they understand how to do this thing that you don't know. It's no more arrogant than if you were to meet a scout who knows the terrain. But he's saying, I know the way, you need to join in imitating me. It's about imitation. But I also want you to understand, friends, that he is, Paul understood that this happens in community, that this is not just about you as a lone disciple copying your hero. This is why he uses, he, that literally when he says, join in imitating me, it means join together, all of you join together, sort of link hands as it were, in imitating me. And then he says also, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In, in, us. in other words, he sees the community of the church being a profound discipleship community where we have an incredible impact upon one another. And here's the practical outlet. The deeper you go in fellowship in the church, usually, ideally, the more godly you become. If you're the kind of person who looks at your life and thinks, I am struggling to maintain anything like a walk with God, or and I have a kind of I'm just torn all the time, and I'm torn into the world, and I'm, and I'm also pulled towards Christ, and this is a constant war at work within me. Now, we all know what that feels like, but friend, I want, I want you to understand that you cannot possibly experience a walk with Jesus unless you embed yourself deeply into a godly community where other people love Jesus, hopefully, more than you do, and are further ahead than you. Being heavenly minded is not an abstract thing. It's not that you are kind of drifting through life in a trance, dreaming about heaven. It means that you find people around you who live as though heaven is real, and then you start to do what they do. I can think of people in my life who've made very concrete impact upon me because I've just watched the way they do things. Whether it's missionary friends who show extraordinary generosity and hospitality despite not having anything. Particular friends who, um, who barely have any money to buy decent food for their own family and literally go to the market in the nation where they live and look for the vegetables which the market sellers have rejected but then bring them home and serve them to their guests not because they don't love their guests but because they're constantly wanting to share of what they have out of the overflow of their heart and you look at their hospitality and their generosity and their desire to love others and you start to copy this is what a heavenly minded life looks like you have no hope if you're isolated and outside of the church. But friend, you will grow if you, are, if you link your life in with the lives of other believers who know Jesus better than you do and who live as though he is there. Here's the second thing. You know that you belong to a different place. 
You know you belong to different people. You know you belong to a different place. He says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Citizenship matters a huge amount in this world. Why is it that we have masses of people making the extraordinarily dangerous uh, move to get across the Mediterranean into the nations of southern Europe because once they're in, they're in, they can pass from nation to nation freely. Why are they making that treacherous journey? Because citizenship matters. It affects, when you understand that your citizenship is in heaven, it affects you in two dimensions. One, it affects the way you, you look at the world around you. It's your relationship with the world around you. You begin to understand that you actually don't belong here, first of all. You feel like an exile. So what Je- um, is taught to, this is the language that's used in 1 Peter later on in the, in the, in the Bible. He says we're, we're strangers and exiles on the earth because our citizenship, friends, is in heaven. We feel like outsiders. And that's okay. I look at the way, the direction of our society at the moment. I think to be a Christian, because we... We're living in a post-Christian era. It's actually becoming more obvious when people love Jesus because the world around is becoming more hostile to the things of Jesus. With every passing month even, and certainly with every passing year. But friends, that's actually okay. Because Christians have always been different. We've always been different. We've always been the weirdos and the outliers. And there's nothing wrong with feeling that way or even looking that way. But the other dimension of that is that you're also an ambassador And to live a heavenly life means that your actions, your desires, your passions, all of it communicates to people around you that you're not living according to the rhythms of this world, but according to the rhythms of heaven. The way you handle your finances, the way you relate with people of the opposite sex or of the same sex, the way you approach work, all of it demonstrates where your true passion and allegiance lies. People ought to be able to look at your life and see that you represent Jesus. To be heavenly minded, friends, is to understand your citizenship is elsewhere and affects your relationship with people around you. But the other way it affects you is it affects your relationship to heaven itself. Now, as you know, we're not very good at predicting the future. If we were, you know, the conservatives wouldn't, or whoever it was would not have put on those buses that we will give however many millions of pounds to the NHS after Brexit happens. Because they were trying to predict a future which actually they couldn't deliver on. And other people are doomsayers, saying, well, everything's going to go wrong when, when Brexit happens. And if you knew the answer to what would happen when Brexit happens, you'd be, you'd be able to make some pretty smart choices now. Where do you put your money? Where do you invest? Do you invest in London? Do you invest in Paris? Where do you, what do you do? If you could tell the future, you'd be a wealthy person. Now, friends, when Paul says to you, and when the Bible says to you, your citizenship is in heaven, he's saying you actually know something about the future that ought to control how you invest your time, resources, energy, passions now. Because, friend, you can waste your life spending it on the things of this world, or you can invest it in the things of God. Here's the last thing. You know also that you belong to a different person. He says, our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now remember, you have a choice in this world who, which gods you serve. If desire is your God, if your belly is your God, or some other appetite is your God, those desires will enslave you. And ultimately, what happens to you when you serve your desires? Doesn't it lead to disease, the damaging of yourself and of others around you, and eventually ends in death? These idols that you serve do not love you. They want to destroy you. But then when Paul thinks about Jesus, the Savior who had intervened in his life and been so kind to him, even though he didn't deserve it, He knows he's met a kind Savior who means the best for him. He's a Savior for your past, friends. If any of this is resonating, you think, I feel conviction for the things that I've done. I feel even a guilt over things that I've indulged in life. The very fact that Paul calls him a Savior means that Jesus can offer you a fresh start right now. He can offer you cleansing. He can offer you a new beginning if you let your life belong to him. He's a Savior for your future. Paul put everything, he pinned everything. You imagine if this was a gambling table, he went all in on the resurrection, that Jesus is going to transform our lives in the future. He's going to give us new bodies, which means that this life is not all about indulging the body you have now. It's about waiting for what God is going to do in the future. And friends, he's a savior for your present. He wants to bring you into a point in life where you are experiencing the flourishing that comes from obedience to God. You can go through life tripping from one desire into another and always be ruled by them and bounce around like a ping pong ball from one desire to another, never being able to say no. Or you can hand your life over to Jesus And you become more like the cedar planted into the courts of God. That's why he says to them, he says, Therefore, my brothers, he closes off, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Standing firm is one thing that seems to be in short supply these days. We live in a culture of what my friend Brett McCracken calls whiplash between political extremes. But also at an individual level, people are so flaky. We can barely commit to something that's happening tonight, never mind in a year or two years or ten years. And we can't commit to each other. But a person who's rooted in God's will experiences the stability of what it means to hand your life over to Jesus in obedience. Do you want to be a reactive person tossed around by every wind and wave of desire? Or do you want to be more like the cedar in Lebanon? Do you want to give your life back to Jesus today? Do you want to repent of the stuff you've been doing? There's a sense of warning in what Paul's saying here, but there's also an enormous sense of hope. Because he says, I've, I've tasted better, and you can have it too, friends. I think this is why he's crying as he writes. He's crying because he feels compassion for people who are so blinded by their desire. 
Because you look at how people hurt themselves and the misery they end up in. And Paul's seen enough of it. He'd been around in the world enough. You know, you think London's bad. The cities that Paul visited were much, much worse. He saw it all. He saw the mess of society and he felt broken for it. He says, their end is destruction. This is not doom. This is compassion. This is mercy. Do you want that? Is that where you want to go? Is that what you want your life to amount to? Or do you want to be experience the grace and love of Jesus reorienting you, helping you control those desires, helping you to live for his glory, helping you to experience meaning and satisfaction in life like you haven't dreamed of? Can I invite all of us to stand? We're going to spend some time in worship as a way of responding. But before we sing, I think it would be right for us to bow our heads. I feel certain whenever I speak about about sin as we have today, whenever we speak about these themes, I feel certain that the Holy Spirit is putting his finger on things in people's hearts. Because I feel it even in myself as I prepare and as I meditate on the text during the week. I know that my life isn't fully aligned with the heavenly reality like I want it to be. And the Lord Jesus in his kindness shows you the areas of your life where you are not, where you're living as though heaven is not real where functionally this earth is all that matters to you. And friends, we need to bow our heads because we always need to come back in repentance. Martin Luther said in the first of his 95 theses, which he nailed to Wittenberg, uh, the door of of the cathedral there, he said that all of the Christian life is a life of repentance. This is why we take communion every week. We want to be reminded that we died with Jesus on the cross so that we could be raised up to new life and walk in it. So friends, I want us to have a moment of quiet to have dealings with God. But let's have a moment of quiet and then I'll pray. Lord Jesus, if you that the one who lived and died for us and then was risen from the dead, then we cannot escape the reality that you own us, that we were purchased by your blood. Teach us to slay sin and walk in the good of your kindness towards us. Amen.